as has already been said, I want to welcome you again um, to worship with us this Advent season. Uh, I don't know uh, what drew you here this morning, whether it was a genuine sense of wanting to discover, to discover more about the God that made you and your place in his story. If what drove you this morning was a sense of obligation, uh, what drove you this morning was a sense of coercion uh, from uh, someone who kind of twisted your arm a little bit. Uh, maybe someone said, hey, sit down on the couch and watch this if you're uh, tuning in online. Uh, but as we begin, I just feel compelled to pray that God would help you discover something incredible about his grace this morning and your part in his story. God, I thank you for those that are watching uh, from home or from work. God, I thank you for the men and the women, the children in this room who are here. Uh, some because they want to be, uh, some because they think they have to be, uh, some who aren't even sure why. And God, I just pray that in the midst of this Advent season that you would reveal yourself in a powerful way that those who trust and follow you would be drawn deeper into your life to see you in a new way that shapes and changes them, that those, Father, who have turned from you would, would hear uh, a message of your love and your invitation to return and how much you care for them, those that maybe are skeptical of you, that they would hear something that invites and piques their interest to search and to discover, ultimately, who you are and their place in your story. God, would you just help us lean into and learn from your words to discover what's at the heart of Christmas, your grace. I trust that you will help the words that come through my mouth uh, to bring you honor and glory and draw people to you and to you alone. And it's in your name I pray these things. In your name I trust. In the name of Jesus, amen. Our series is titled, Grace, uh, A Christmas Story. Uh, there are many stories that we associate with Christmas, uh, but before them all is the story of God's grace. When we talk about grace, we're just very simply uh, speaking of the unmerited, the unearned favor of God. God's disposition of favor towards you. He cares about you. He loves you. And it's nothing that you have earned. It's his loving kindness towards you. That's, that's God's grace. And that's the story of Christmas. God's grace is the most incredible gift. He tells us that his grace is a gift. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 says that we have been saved by grace through faith. It's not by anything that we can do so that we can't boast. It is the gift of God. It's God's gift to you. We know that, that grace is expressed in a number of ways in God's story and his interactions with humankind, but it's most obvious and most incredible in Jesus. It's expression of God's grace in Jesus, but Jesus himself reveals God's grace through how he lives and what he does, that God would come and enter human flesh that he would live among us and be susceptible to all the temptation and all the suffering and all the difficulties and all the challenges that we are. And that on top of that, he would choose to die 
and receive a death, except a death that he didn't deserve because death is the punishment for sin and he was sinless and he would take upon himself our death. That's God's grace expressed and revealed in Jesus. It is a gift. This is why Paul would write to the Corinthians and say in 2 Corinthians 9, 915, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. That gift is Jesus. And so we're exploring that over these several weeks of our Advent series, the gift of God, this grace that is the story of Christmas. My hope for you, my prayer for you, especially if you are not yet a follower of Jesus, is that his grace would pique your interest. It would provoke you to want to learn more and to discover him. My prayer for you, if you are a follower of Jesus, is that there would be something about his grace that washes over you afresh and anew in this season, a season that comes as we continue in what seems to be a never-ending global pandemic, um, that that grace would touch you and reach you and help you and move you. Uh, the gift of God's grace is a gift that keeps on giving. Have you ever received one of those gifts that keeps on giving? I'm not talking about the, the kind that gives in a bad way. I know there are jokes that are made that if you give, you know, uh, your, your, your children, your grandchildren a puppy, that's a gift that keeps on giving. Uh, it gives a lot of headaches. It gives a lot of frustrations. I'm talking about the, the type of gift that gives in a good way and keeps on giving. Have you ever had one of those presents that you open it and you think it's incredible? But then years later, you are still using that, and you just have this moment of gratitude where you think, man, I'm so glad that mom, dad, brother, sister, husband, wife got that for me. It's just a gift that keeps on giving. When we talk about God's grace, yes, we can talk about how that grace saves. We looked at that last week, that, that God offers us salvation through his grace, that he rescues us from sin, and he, he rescues us to uh, a different type of life. But God's grace does more than that. It is a gift that keeps on giving. We, we, we've, been, we've been looking at this passage in Titus, Titus chapter two. Uh, you may not be familiar with Titus. It's what we call one of Paul's pastoral letters or pastoral epistles. It's a letter that Paul wrote to a man named Titus who was a follower of Jesus who was leading the church on the island of Crete. And as he writes, he gives us this beautiful, simple summation of what we call the gospel in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. And, and by gospel, we very narrowly define that as the great news about who Jesus is, what he's done and continues to do, and what our response to him should be. That's the gospel. And that's what he summarizes in Titus 2, 11 through 14. And in there, he teaches us about God's grace. In fact, I shared last week that all of 11 through 14 in the original letter that Paul wrote is just one sentence that describes God's grace. The grace of God that appears in verse 11 is the primary subject of the entire sentence. So it's the grace of God that appears. It's the grace of God that offers salvation. And in verse 12, it's the grace of God that does even more. It's that gift that keeps on giving. If you have your Bibles, find Titus 2. Um, 11 through 14, we're going to be hanging out in verse 12 today. If you need help finding Titus, there's no harm in using your table of contents, or you can just go to the very end of your Bible and work your way back from Revelation because it's towards the end. So in verse 11, Paul simply told us that God's grace appeared and offered salvation to all people. And we explored that last week. If you weren't able to be here, I'd encourage you to Check it out on YouTube or our website, and, and you can catch up there. 
And then verse 12, he tells us more about God's grace. So he says, it, it's referring back to the grace of God. The grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. And so Paul writes to Titus and reminds him that God's grace does more than just appear. It does more than offer salvation, that God's grace teaches. Uh, this is an interesting word um, for those of you that like to geek out on more intent, uh, intent, um, intense studies. Uh, this word only occurs, I think, four times in the New Testament. It's not the standard word for teach. It's a word that carries with it this picture of this continued formational instruction. Think of it as like the teaching that a parent would do. Uh, a parent has their child in their home. Uh, their, their infant years, toddler, childhood, uh, preteen years, adolescence. And, and what happens in the span of that child's life? A parent is continually teaching and instructing that child. What starts with, hey, let me help you learn to walk grows into help me, let me help you learn to eat, uh, how to put on your clothes, uh, how to engage in interactions. And so the first time that kid's playing on a playground with other kids and either gets punched in the face or punches someone else in the face, there's, there's instruction that comes that helps that child know what's right and what's wrong as that child goes to school and, 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 and words are brought home that haven't been said in that house before and, and stories are told that, that that parent continues to teach. And what happens is over time, that child is instructed and their life is shaped and it is Changed. They are mentored by the instruction of their parents. That's the word that Paul uses here for Titus. This grace teaches. It, it parents you. It mentors you. It coaches you. Uh, maybe that resonates more. Those of you that have children in athletics, when you first teach a child to play football as a, a five or six or seven-year-old, you're not teaching them all the nuances of, of zone defenses and cover two. And, but over time, you teach them more and more, and it shapes them, and it changes them. Uh, maybe for those of you that are visual learners, the, the picture of a sculptor helps. When you think of a sculptor, hammer and chisel in hand, and it's the repeated strikes that shape the sculpture. Or you think about the potter as she works the clay. It's the intentional and repeated pressure of various intensity that shapes that, that mug, that, that bowl. This is what Paul's saying is that the grace of God, somehow this grace that's expressed in Jesus, this unmerited favor, this loving kindness of God that's, that's expressed in Christ, it teaches us, it forms us, it shapes us. So what does it teach us? What does it, what does it do? How does it, how does it mold us? How does it, how does it form us? Well, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and it teaches us to live an upright uh, self-controlled and godly life in this present age. In short, the grace of God teaches us what to say yes to and what to say no to. If you know about your yeses and your nos, your yeses and your nos reveal what your priorities are, don't they? We all have these resources in life, whether it's financial resources, our energy, uh, our mental energy, our emotional energy, our, our physical energy, we have our, our time, we, we have our abilities, and what we say yes to with those and what we say no to reveals ultimately what's most important to us. Someone can open up your bank account and they could see your register and they'll be able to tell what's most important to you. You may say, well, I don't spend a lot of money frivolously. Well, that's not the point. The point is, is that if they see that all your money goes to 
power bills and rent, they'll know that providing shelter is important to you. If they open up your bank statement and they see that, that you eat a lot of Titus donuts, they're going to know that the Titus donuts are important to you. Your yeses and your noes share what your priorities are. And so as we learn about this gospel, this gospel of grace, that God loves us so much that he would send his son to live and to die and to save us, and to not just rescue us from our sin, but to rescue us to life. He, he shows us how, how we live that life. What do we say yes to? What do we say no to? He says, we say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. This is a defiant no, by the way. And that's why some of your Bible versions will say to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Some versions say to deny ungodliness and worldly passions. That word ungodliness is a favorite word of Paul. It occurs a lot in Romans. It's what provokes the wrath of God. So think about all those ways that people would choose to live opposed to what God's best is for humanity. All the ways that they would forsake what, what God has designed for life, whether that's murder or, or some other act of rage, whether that's rape, whether that's um, you know, oppression and slavery, whatever would constitute life against God's best, that's ungodliness. And God's grace teaches us to give a defiant, resolute no to ungodliness. It also teaches us to say no to worldly passions. And that's a word that speaks more to those general lusts and desires that we have that can take us away from the heart of God. Somehow God's grace, his loving kindness in Jesus, teaches me how to say no to those things that harm me and harm the world around me. Again, it's a defiant no. For me, the easiest picture is to picture a defiant toddler. Maybe you have a sibling and you remember them as a toddler, a niece, a nephew, a child, a grandchild, and you know when that child's body goes stiff with defiance and they are not moving, like they dig their heels in, there is no way they're going to do what you've asked them to do. I picture the, the toddler sitting at the table and it's time to eat, and that child does not want to eat the vegetables that mama wants to serve him, and so that child purses his lips and it is like crowbar is not getting in there. It's not doing anything. It is a defiant no. In God's grace, what he has done, what he has revealed, what he has expressed in Jesus teaches us to say no defiantly to ungodliness and worldly passions. But it also teaches us what to say yes to. Anytime we say no to something, we're saying yes to something else. Just practically speaking, if, if you say no to the overtime, you're likely saying yes to more time with your family. Whenever we say no, we say yes to something. And so when we say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, we're saying yes to something else. And what's that yes? That yes is to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. So we say no to the ungodliness, we say no to the worldly passions, and we say yes to the self-control and the uprightness and the godliness that we see in Jesus. We look to his life and we say, okay, how did you treat people? How, how did you care for people? How did you love people? Like what was godliness for Jesus? How did he respond in this situation? How did he respond in that situation? What does the whole counsel of God's word tell me about, about living an upright life? What does it look like to live rightly? How do I respond to my neighbors? How do I respond to the child who punched me in the face? How do I respond to people when they hurt me? How do I respond to crises in life and grief in life? Like the, the, 
the grace of God teaches me how to say yes to that self-controlled, that upright, and that godly life. The grace of God not only saves me from sin and rescues me from sin, but it rescues me to that life that's lived in response to that grace. That that life that, that's lived in response to what God has done. You know, we, we celebrate in Jesus not just our salvation, but a life of fullness that he demonstrates for us. It's a gift that keeps on giving. God's grace teaches us. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to say yes to self-control, uprightness, and a godly life. So what are you saying yes and no to? When you look at your life, when you pull back to a distance, are you saying yes to self-control, upright living and godliness that you see like visually expressed in the life of Jesus? Are you saying no to ungodliness and worldly passions or do you find that you're more often saying yes to the ungodliness and the worldly passions? The grace of God should shape us. It should transform us. It should transform our priorities. And the beauty of this grace that teaches us, I love that image of the parent because it's not something that happens instantly. Yes, we, we, we put our faith in Jesus Christ and we are counted among the rescued and the saved and our inheritance is with him and, and, and we'll be a part of the redeemed and restored earth. But, but the process of becoming more like him and living in his way, that's, that's a lifetime. I love the prayer that Paul has for the church in Philippians chapter one. He says that, he prays with me, he says that I pray that God who began a good work in you would carry it on to completion. You're gonna continue to learn and grow as grace teaches you. Later in the letter to the Philippians, uh, Paul writes and he says that they're to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. It's a process. You're growing, you're changing. And so are you finding as you look at your life that you're more often saying yes to the things that would honor God and more often saying no to the things that don't? Where are you in that, in, in that transformation journey? How is God shaping you? Where's the chisel working? Where's the clay being formed? Another great question to ask is if we're saying yes, no, what's teaching us? What's your main teacher in, in how you respond to the world? You know, the picture of being a disciple and discipleship is this idea that we are learners and we are learning from Jesus. He's our teacher and we want to live like him and live according to his ways. He's shaping our lives. But do you and I realize that we're always being discipled and taught by something? So what's your primary teacher? Do you know that what we listen to and what we watch and the conversations that we have and what we read those things all shape us. There's always influence coming to shape our worldview, how we process life around us. And so what is your primary teacher? Is it the grace of God or is it something else? I think this is what makes the spiritual disciplines that we've looked at this year so important is because as we study God's word and as we meditate on those words and as we memorize those words and as we pray to him, He's shaping our thought process about how we see the world. 
And if he's shaping our process more than what we've binged on Netflix is, we're better positioned to live that self-controlled, upright, and godly life. But if we're not allowing God to teach us what we should say yes to and what we should say no to, then chances are whatever we've seen on Netflix and Hulu or read in the paper or had in conversations will shape us more. We're all being discipled by something. So what's teaching you? Is it the grace of God that's teaching you? This grace of God that appeared that offers salvation, is it teaching you to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to say yes to living a self-controlled, upright, and godly life? See, the heart of the story of Christmas is not just rescue from sin. It's rescue to a whole new way. We celebrate Jesus because he showed us the very best of what it means to be human. The story of Christmas is a story of transformation where we can exchange one set of priorities for another. Have you ever noticed how much the theme of transformation shows up in our favorite Christmas shows? Let's just take Home Alone for an example. A new Home Alone released here recently. Basically the same story, just different kid, different time, different place. Story of Home Alone. Child. We'll go to the OG Home Alone, Kevin McAllister. Frustrated, annoyed, feels forgotten, wishes his family's all gone, that they never existed, that they're, they're nowhere to be found. Goes to bed, wakes up, they're all gone. He got forgotten. Through a series of struggles, what happens, Kevin comes to realize how much he wants his family around. Kevin's mom gets back to the States, gets to ride with the great John Candy back to, to Kevin's house, and the relationship is restored. It's transformation. He goes from not wanting his family, not liking his family, to treasuring his family. And even his family goes from being frustrated and annoyed with Kevin to embracing him and caring for him. It's a story of transformation. Take the story of It's a Wonderful Life. George Bailey, financial loss, crushes him pushes him to the place of despair and darkness. He's frustrated. He lashes out at his family. He lashes out at, at a friend, gets punched in the face, and ends up being willing to take his own life until the guardian angel Clarence shows up and shows him how the world would be without him. And George Bailey's life is transformed. Elf, Walter Hobbs, Upset, frustrated, uh, caring only about money. And what happens over the course of the film, his priorities shift and they change. It's a story of transformation. Now here's something that, I don't know if it'll blow your mind or not, it kind of blew my mind. I think It's a Wonderful Life and Elf are just the same story in different generations. We trade Clarence out for Buddy the Elf. We have someone who has financial pressure. They treat their family harshly and their priorities shift and their priorities change. And what about the Christmas classic, uh, Christmas Carol, Charles Dickens? What do you see in Ebenezer Scrooge's life? Transformation. He learns to live by a different set of priorities. Could it be that we treasure transformation so much in our Advent season because the original Christmas story, the story of grace is all about transformation? And could it be the greatest story of transformation has nothing to do with what Hollywood has ever written or produced, but with what God has done for you and what God wants to do in you and what God wants to do 
through you. The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people, including you. And that grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. If you are a disciple of Jesus, we need to ask the question, is God's grace teaching us? Is God's grace shaping us? Are, are we being shaped to be more like him and what he desires for us? You may say, okay, well, how do I know? Well, I'd encourage you to take a step back from your life and look at the big picture. So often we'll just ask the question, am I more like Jesus than I was yesterday, last week, last month, last year? And I think the, the greatest indicator is not necessarily yesterday, because we can all probably find ways that we've messed up and, and, and made huge mistakes in the last couple of days. But what if we look back at the last year? Does my life look more like him? Jesus who told me to go and to bear fruit. Jesus who told me to bear fruit in keeping with righteousness, that people can judge me by the fruit of my life. Is that fruit evident? I think about the words of Paul to the Galatians. When you think about love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, these are identified as the fruit of the Spirit. So if I look at my life and I look back to a year ago, am I more loving? Am I more joyful? Am I more patient? Am I willing to endure through more things? Am I more kind? Am I more gentle? Am I more faithful? Am I more self-controlled? That will be evidence that God's grace is teaching me to live this self-controlled, upright, and godly life. And if it's not, then I get to ask another set of questions. Why? Why am I not more gentle? What are some th places in my life I need to practice gentleness? Why, why am I not more joyful? What is it that's, that's standing in between me? Is it a battle with contentment? Is it looking for joy in the things of this world? Like we, can, we can identify those things and begin working through them, asking God to help us in that. Are you more like Jesus today than you were last year? And if you're not a disciple of Jesus, the question I'd encourage you to ask yourself is, What's keeping you? Is, is it that you still have questions about the validity of Jesus' claims? Is it that you, you still have questions about whether or not he really cares about what we do in this world? Is it because you, you have questions about the, 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 the Bible and whether it's truthful? Will, will you allow those questions to push you to explore and to discover? I heard a story here a couple years ago. Someone I knew had been given gifts from a family member. They chose not to open those gifts. Uh, there were reasons, there was conflict, they weren't sure of their relationship, and so they opted not to open those gifts. And so those gifts just sat in a box for months. They didn't want to open the gift. God's gift of grace to you is there. It's present, it's waiting. Maybe you've chosen not to open it yet because you're not really sure of God. Maybe there's some conflict between you and him, some disappointments, some questions, some doubts. But I'd encourage you to, to peel open the bow, to pull back the packaging, and start that, start that journey of discovery to see the very best of who he is. And I'll just wrap up with this. When we read that verse, verse 12, that the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly life, when does it say we do this? In this present age. God's grace wants to teach you right now.
There's life to be discovered right now. There is hope to be held on to right now in this present age. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you for the power of just the simple gospel message that Jesus was, in fact, your son, that he came to live, to show us what it really looks like to be human, and he came to die to rescue us from our sin. And that, Father, our response to that is to live this life in pursuit of a life that looks like his. God, would you guide us in that? Would we be humble enough to let your grace teach us? And God, as we do, would we be lights that shine brightly in this world? It's in your name we pray and trust in the name of Jesus. Amen.